0: And we went to these neighbourhoods and we showed them love, but
1: it worked. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me on today's show, we've got Akish. How are you, mate?
2: Hello. Uh, I'm
1: very well, thank you, Dave. I'm very well. Good afternoon. Good, good weekend? Yeah, it's nice, yeah. Restful, relaxed,
2: chilled out. Yeah, in the office on a Monday, so we're good to go.
1: How did you start your Monday? Um, our social media um, guru put a poll out this morning. What's the best way to kickstart your Monday morning? How did you kickstart your Monday morning?
2: <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a, you know, double espresso and. Uh... Watched a bit of the sports news. Watched, uh, you know, the Super Bowl results. Um, not, oh, yeah, not, yeah. not that I'm an NFL Sunday. fan. Yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> Why my would jumper. you be an NFL fan? Yeah, well, exactly. But, uh, you, you know. No, sorry, <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah sorry. we've got American. Well, we're going to have American uh, listeners. So, you know, go Chiefs. Um um, you know, it was the Chiefs that won, I think. Uh, they made a comeback yes. in one of the all time
1: classic Super Bowl games. So, quite an American feel. Yes, no, we, to, to be fair, I jest. And it's your sport, guys. Love it. Great. Um, We've got an interview later in the show specifically tailored to the fact that it was the Super Bowl um, because our second interview today is with Beachfront Media talking all about advertising, where to spend your money across media channels and talking about the fact that obviously um, there are there are appointment viewing events, which the Super Bowl is definitely appointment viewing events.
2: It is. It's... Um... It's huge. And also, just while we're on media, I heard that yep. KSI and Logan Paul are the first ever YouTubers to have an advert run during the Super Bowl. So, Really? Yeah. So, you know, they've got that Prime drink, um, which obviously our listeners in the States will be fully aware of, Logan Paul. Our listeners in the UK might be fully aware of KSI. A couple of YouTubers. They've got an energy drink called Prime. It's been going absolutely crazy and nuts. Um I think all around the world, really, and uh, yeah, they've um, they've managed to uh, managed to get themselves an advert during the Super Bowl.
1: All the more reason to stay tuned for that second interview with Amit, VP of Products at Beachfront Media. Now, before that, in the states, this is this is very um, US-friendly focused this week. It is Black Live, uh, sorry, it is Black History Month rather in the states, uh, all of February, and we wanted to mark that with an interview and this is one that I'm genuinely really excited about we've got Siobhan Newsom, who's the founder of Black Lives Matter Greater New York and Black Opportunities she's someone who's been profiled by magazines such as Forbes and Elle we've got um, ERGs within our own organization so employee resource groups that um, promote and support the activities of our minority groups um, our women within our organization and also members of the LGBTQIA plus community so absolutely something that is close to our heart as an organization and is something that has always been close to the heart of this podcast since we started it eight years ago. I do want to just say um, the views in this podcast, the personal views and experiences of Siobhan and Newsom that is, um, don't represent and uh, are not endorsed by rather Nash Squared or its related brands such as Harvey Nash USA but it is obviously the, the topic and the tone that we want to raise and make sure that during this month, um, you, our listeners, our community, are fully aware of as as educated as you can be about the issues, and to try and support um, the work to make sure that there is, you know, a truly inclusive environment. So we'll play this interview, and myself and Akeisha will come back afterwards with some comments on it. So today I'm joined by Shyvana. Um I'm very lucky to be joined by you because you you've got a huge amount on. You are the co-founder of Black Lives Matter New York. So thank you for giving up some time to talk
0: to us. Thank you so much, David, for having me. Um, I'm excited about our chat. Uh, It's a very important month. Uh, It's Black History Month here in the States. And it's Mm -hmm. just a privilege uh, as a Black woman being raised in America, born and raised, just for my voice to be heard, period, and for my, my voice to have the ability to foster change. So I'm grateful to be here.
1: Let's just start with some some very, very basic stuff. I mean, as you said, it's Black History Month in the U.S. You're the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Greater New York. What have you got going on this month?
0: Um, This month is crazy. Right now, we have teams going down... Uh, to Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, Jaheim McMillan, 15 year old, unarmed, murdered by, uh, Gulfport Police Department. Uh, some activists have been arrested. It's garnering local news, but it's this week. It should have been his 16th birthday. Uh, so our team is going down to support, defend, and protect, and to get his voice out and be there for his mother. Uh, and next week we are going out to Colorado, uh, black man has the American dream, uh, buys 1,000 acres of land, and guess what he's faced with? Absolute white supremacy uh, on Black Farmers Matter and on at theblackops.com, you can read more about it. But we're going out there to fortify his land, protect his land, and ultimately the goal is to build sustainable housing uh, out of converter homes, uh, those storage bin type things where we're gonna have uh, homeless veterans come there and work the land because it is 1,000 acres and we have a Black family living in here. Um, and after that, it's some Black History Month events. But right now, Jaheen McMillan and Black Farmers at Freedom Acres Ranch, um, those are the two most pressing things that are on my, I live in a week cycle. So that's what's happening in the next week.
1: So plenty, plenty, as you say, going on. Uh, it sounds like you're traveling a huge amount as well, not just in New York, that's for sure. Yes.
0: Um, I, I, I've been fortunate that our work has brought us to uh, Houston, Texas, uh, Atlanta, Georgia for disaster relief, uh, the Summer of Hope, which is our non-violence project under Black Opportunities, which I'm also the co-founder. Uh, we're doing a national tour. So we are going to be combating violence in the most violent areas, uh, Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, uh, Chicago, and New York. So yes, being the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in New York has allowed me to fight the good fight
1: around the nation let's let's do a bit of education because i think the vast majority of people are obviously familiar with black lives matter but they might not necessarily have interacted with black lives matter in your own words as the co-founder of black lives matter great in new york what is what is black lives matter about
0: um i I just want complete clarity and transparency uh we were never a part of the global movement um we came (laughs) about a like a few years later, out of a need. Uh, The original global movement, which was founded by um, women, it it was more theoretical, it was more playwrights, and we felt and we believed that the issues plaguing Black people and the need for liberation was something that needed to be met on the ground. So my brother and I, we co-founded this organization. Um, In terms of everyday people and what Black Lives Matter is, it's so much more than me, it's so much more than the other founders. It's a movement it's the new civil rights movement it's carrying on the ongoing fight that black people and black leaders have been fighting for for quite some time so anyone who has been politically engaged since uh, Michael Brown or even going back to the first time I marched with Sean Bell uh, when we talk about Eric Gardner uh, when you talk about the numerous other people and now Tyree Nichols uh, God bless him who was just beaten to death uh, you are a part of that movement if you are pushing forward justice may that be social media, whether it's journalism, whether you are a teacher working in education and you are fighting for the liberation of black people, we all don't need to be on the front lines like me, going head to head in a bulletproof vest with the police, um, being a part to be classified as being a part of this movement. Um, it's a civil rights movement and everyone can play a huge part in that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you you do kind of draw attention to the fact that it's it's slightly separate, I suppose, from black lives matter um there was an article in Forbes where it talks about the fact that you knew there was already a black lives matter chapter in New York that tried to end systemic oppression through through the arts yeah but you and your brother wanted to take something that was more direct action with a strong push for changes in legislation Is, is that something specific to do with New York City and the environment that you found yourselves in and some of the challenges that you saw in the environment
0: I think that, well, oppression is forever right, Dora. Just to give you a little bit of background, I was born in the Bronx. Um, I still choose to reside here. Uh, I I grew up in the nation's poorest congressional district. I actually ran for Congress in 2020 in that district. Um, But my parents, um, it's a beautiful love story. So this whole liberation thing, it'll make sense why I'm so passionate about it. They met in high school in the Bronx, and they were both from different parts of the South, but they ended up at the same high school, and they were fighting for Black history to be taught by black teachers so uh, my dad was outside organizing he looked up he saw my gorgeous beautiful mother in the window looking um out of the window and he called her to come outside and protest so with that being said, that's my family life. Um, it, it grew up, our kitchen table just should have been called the round table. Uh, we are news junkies uh, since I was a child. I'm um, being engaged in the political process. Um, my father used to take me to pull down the levers. Um, that's how you voted by ballot back in the day before it became digital. Um, but it was always stand up to the bully. I don't think I realized I was an activist I- until people deemed me that. And of course, I started this organization and people knew. But whether that- that was like organizing the community against slum landlords or clothing drives or food drives or all these things were just something that my, my parents did. Like our house was like a welcome shelter to anyone who was experiencing hard times. My father took fatherless kids to Yankee Stadium games on the cheap day tickets because we are in the Bronx. Um, so everything about them, I felt I feel like this is just my destiny, um, my path and what God led me to do. Because if I look at my resume, everything has led me to this point into us having this conversation.
1: So one thing that you said before we hit record was that a lot of the efforts felt like they were helping from 30,000 feet up. And Black Opportunities, that the new organization that you've launched, was about tackling it at the ground level. Can you just... Talk me through that and, and why why that felt like it was a significant difference from what was already being done.
0: Um, just like, I think it's us. I, I think it's our organization and uh, God granted ability to see around the corner corners. And I think that comes from the time that you spend with the people. So when we launched our organization, yes, we were combating white supremacy and systemic oppression head on. And we have been very successful at that. When you look at any pictures of marches of Black Lives Matters or any b-roll or anything like that, you are going to see either my face, my brother's face, or us together, our signage, our logo. And we've been highly effective at that. But being effective at something. you develop a strategy, you, you understand a need, a need for the people. So in the time that we've launched Black Opportunities, we've opened up a Montessori school here in the Bronx, which is completely free. Our kids are receiving a $50,000 education people need education. That's another way to fight poverty because the semi-oppression is all about ending poverty. It's all about giving black people their equity uh, here in this country and eventually abroad. Um, We fed over 75,000 people and that ranges from Houston, Texas to uh, Georgia to here in New York City. Turkeys, we give 500 of those minimum away. Toy drives, 3,000 because Yes, I can preach all these ideals to you, right? Because, yes, we were fighting oppression, but we were getting legislation passed. We were communicating with Governor Andrew, then Governor Andrew Cuomo He had 38,000 felons, their voting rights back. But. People can't eat those things. You know what I mean? Some of those things, like, yeah, they were helping people in the long run, but they weren't tangible. Like, me giving you a butterball turkey days before Thanksgiving and you don't have one. That is something real. Me finding a way to use my resources to give you food vouchers, that's real. Uh, Black opportunities, we're moving into employment. uh, We are giving, we're, we're about to build shelter in Colorado um, at the Freedom Acres Ranch for homeless veterans um, so they can work and have sustainable housing. Um, we want to give people, in addition, yes, I'm going to fight for laws, a uh, blue wall bill to stop officers from falsifying police force, uh, police reports. the Community Power Act to discipline officers is also something I'm working on in, with New York City Council. But people need things they can touch. People need to cope when they're warm. People need food when they're hungry. And Black opportunities opportunities has allowed us to find a way to do both and I'm really grateful for that
1: and our team I, I suppose it's about seeing progress in the community right because you previously were a financial advisor um, yes. within, a, within an insurance firm so when you say <laughs> you know when you when you when you talk about it's all very well about legislation but this is about making tangible differences in using the skill sets that you had
0: yes um and economic freedom. I'm teaching Black folk how to manage their money, how to manage their credit. Uh, We have an annual Juneteenth celebration. Um, That's when Black people really became free, when the last of us found out that we were free down in Texas. Um, But we had Hill Harper come and talk to Black folks, Black and Brown folks here in the Bronx about financial literacy. Um, We're looking to build our own and open our own headquarters within the next year. And in there, how we're teaching students, right? Which we have a hard and physical school uh, while Flower Char- Charter School, anyone listening, uh, we can get your, app to plug it, um, our, our, your pre-K to uh, third graders next year. We'll have fourth graders uh, coming in. But we also need to educate adults. We can't give up on people because of their age. So we teach financial literacy and we'll be adding job training um, and job reemployment within the next years to come. Um, just It's really simple what we do, actually. Um, we look at all the things that government is not doing. We look at all the problems and we create simple solutions, like going back to the Summer of Hope. Uh, we used art, we used food, we used music, we used love and smiles to literally decrease crime. So say the troublemakers, the people who would actually be committing violence in a community, would participate. They'd bring their children outside. After having a good, fun day in a positive and healthy environment... People were less likely to commit crimes, and we we have the stats to back that up. I'm just happy to be able to fill. Me and my team are able to fill the void.
1: You talk there about kind of using the arts and and kind of very positive um, words like love. Um, you you are using those techniques to tackle crime and to try and break cycles, I suppose, of poverty. <laughs> how do you do that how can you break some of those cycles and and what does success look like for you um
0: well success looks like it's measurable success is very measurable when we look at the housing rate and we find that we have more black people in home home ownership when we look at the wealth disparities here in America you remember the finance thing so of course I'm going to measure everything in numbers um (laughs) we look at the wealth gap between blacks and whites in America when we talk about uh education like when you talk about my district and I go to the process I really want people to listen we have about a 60 percent high school dropout rate and a 10 percent um college completion rate those numbers are absolutely terrible so when we change those numbers and it's a little bit of um Martin Luther King in there, to be quite honest, because like his last goal and last thing he was working on, and, and, and I feel like I'm carrying that torch and fighting that torch was to eradicate poverty. So eradicating poverty with black people is about 13 million of us here in America, um, making it, erasing all of the hardships and obstacles. That's what success would be like. But it's very simple. It's it's really not hard. So that's why you understand that systemic oppression exists. Like when I tell you I like decreased crime with uh, the budget was under $100,000 and we had on shorts and T-shirts and we got on the microphone and we didn't even beat them in the head. We didn't even say anything like don't shoot each other. We just said we love you. We care about you. We're here from you. Take some food. Take a smile. We understand and we show people love and compassion. It worked. Um, Getting people job training is something that works. Helping people get a GED, a graduate equivalent diploma. These things are very simple things and they're able to be accomplished with limited resources. And then I also have to tell you about reparations, because every other country, every other person impacted by slavery, slave owners, uh, people of other races, they receive this money. Black folks need reparations in addition to the other resources, just so they can have level footing to even the playing field of the wealth disparity. So it's a number of things, but they're really simple. And it's like, if the American government or any other government really wanted to change these things, they, they could. It's, and it's It becomes disheartening at times, right? I, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it's just so much to say around this. When you watch documentaries on Angela Davis and um, Malcolm X and... Our original doctrines from Black Lives Matter Greater New York were taken from um, the Black Panther Party and their 10-point plan. We're fighting for the same thing. So pretty much people who could be like my great grand my grandparents' age, who were my grandparents' age, I'm fighting the same fight as them. If when I have children or my children's children, if they don't have to fight for these same things, if they can pick like a new clause because I've erased racism and poverty, then, then that's the real goal that that
1: that's when my work is done someone listening to you they might be they might be cynical and say well it sounds all very nice but you say you know it was successful um August, did you say that August last year was the third safest yes. month ever in New York? In, in um, New, New York, York City,
0: crime was decreased by forty percent. We were really strategic about it. Um we got the crime stat data and we found out these neighborhoods that had the highest level of shooting. So it wasn't like we just went and set up shop anywhere. It was a great amount of strategy put into it. Um and we went to these neighborhoods and we showed them love because people in this communities, they in New York City. I said it's a thing like everyone minds their business, right? It's like you don't speak to your neighbors. You're afraid to engage with the police. Your politicians don't come around unless it's election time and they're begging for their votes. But they get to see people who they've seen on TV, people whose work they've heard about, who are are outside with them communing and fellowshipping. And it just changed the energy. So, yeah, it took some strategy. Absolutely. It was a whole bunch of permits and and a whole lot of things that went into it and a small budget but it works, and I get it. Like our donors and our supporters, everyone thought we were crazy last summer when we launched the Summer of Hope that you're gonna stop crime with love. I understand for the people listening, but it worked. Yeah, so the third safest month, August in New York City history because we were outside spreading love. So love works.
1: Now look, the world that you are operating in there is an incredibly important one, but it feels also quite distant from a corporate environment certainly where i'm sat in in rural england right uh and we've got like 16 offices around the world um how do we apply some of the lessons that you have to a corporate organization to try and make it a fairer environment where there is progress and education
0: Well, as we've seen out of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the uprising of George Floyd, um, a lot of corporations have included um, diversity and inclusion. Uh, What we need in a corporate setting is the same thing we need in the community setting. Uh, People need for their voices to be heard. We understand how the corporate structure looks. We understand that women and Black folk are usually at the bottom of that. We understand the wealth gaps. I'm not sure on their stats in the UK. I won't speak on them. But uh, here in America, we can attest that it's a very small percentage of Black people in leadership. So I think that by looking, because Black women actually in America are the fastest going rate of being highly educated and business owners, uh, we need to start filling those voids in the corporate setting with people uh, who, have, who are different, people who are diverse. Peep, that energy and their culture will eventually shift the corporate structure. And I think we need a little bit of corporate responsibility. Um, even when I was uh, in the finance, suit and tie, white shoe world, um, I, I still did the senior citizen homes. I still did the toy drives. I still did these things. Um, and what about corporations trying to eradicate poverty? What about job training programs? What about a, a pathway um, into trades? Uh, there's so much that corporate America could do if people just thought about their neighbor. Like, I'm a Christian, so of course, most of my philosophies and jobs are going to come from the golden rule and doing on to others as you would have them do on to you. But I think the same thing that I'm able to apply successfully in the inner cities, in impoverished communities um, around the country, I think that we can bring that to corporate America. And that's how we're going to affect change. It just can't be a handful of folks trying to do something or one politician. It's going to take a very big collaborative effort because for Black people to win, right, we need resources and equity. We need investments. And who better than a corporation doing that? And imagine how I don't know if it's hit over there, but it's this whole thing where people are kind of like divesting from work where they're not really engaged. I think the name of it is called like quiet quitting. It was making the headlines um, this summer. Um, what if people made a living wage, a good salary and a part of their job included giving back? Um, imagine if you incorporated that into the corporate structure i'm sure people would be happier their health would be better and they would change their overall mood about how they feel about work and how they feel about their life so yes i want to my goal is like salt there i want to sprinkle kindness all over everything (laughs) because it works
1: (laughs) look it's been a, a, a real joy to speak to you today i appreciate you giving up some time this morning it sounds like you'd advocate that uh Every family has a kitchen table that is thriving. And that the world might be a better place if that was the case.
0: Right on. I absolutely believe that.
1: <laughs> well, look, I, I really hope that your, your aims uh, for, the, for the rest of the year are successful. But obviously, this month go well. Um, I know you're going to be busy. So best of luck with that. And thanks for spending some time.
0: Thank you so much. And I have to plug all of our good stuff. Uh, check us out. Oh, don't, Yeah, go for the, it. The Black Ops pts.com uh, my social media is at New York Pavani, on all platforms um, get involved spread the word and if you can't make it to the front lines you can make it outside to help your neighbor.
1: okay Keish, there's loads and loads and loads in this I mean it's all it's all super interesting I suppose the bit that that, that um, I can relate to most is when she starts talking about how it can be uh, applied to corporate environments um, and I suppose it'd be great if Amber could have joined us today. And We've got to be honest, Amber's, Amber was meant to join us for the recording of this podcast, but she was wrapped mm. up in calls. Um, when Shivana talks about the ability for my voice to be heard, that's a bit where I guess I struggle to relate to a certain degree, but you might not do to the same extent. Yes, you're not a black woman in New York, but you are a member of the Asian community in the UK, and your voice will not be as well heard as mine, which I have to admit is a very privileged white middle-class background. I don't know when you listen to it, if you have a slightly different angle on it.
2: Yeah. I mean, when I, when I listen to it, I think I could definitely, I could definitely relate to the struggles or to the challenges faced. Right. Um, But I think one thing when, when she said, you know, voices not being heard and kind of, you know, some certain struggles, I think there's, there's been times in my career when I, you know, maybe sometimes feel like, I won't get heard or I won't get listened to or, you know, I won't get taken seriously, right? And we're not always talking about kind of, you know, when you raise a voice for to influence decisions. It can be in anything, you know. It can be not being believed when you're running 15, 20 minutes late, you know, for something. Um, you know, it can be... Uh, it, you know challenging your work to a a, a finer degree it could be a, a range of things right when we say about our voices not being listened to so i can definitely relate to that and i think it's it's the unconscious bias that we kind of think about right and i know in the interview obviously she's mentioned certain uh, episodes and obviously certain uh, instances that are happening at the moment in the us which her team are are sort of working um you know to support um and, and and obviously, you know, allowing people to have a voice, right, or representation, whether it's legal, custodian, political, you know, um, just giving people that platform. Um, and African Americans, in particular, black, you know, black people in America. Um, and given that it is Black History Month, um, and I know for view viewers, listeners in the UK, it's maybe a little bit like. Oh, okay. Like, you know, what's that all about? I mean, you know, Black History Month specifically within America, and, and you know, it it's, it stems from the, the the rich history from the 17th century, right? So it's it's a hell of a long time. Um, where there have been, you know, instances of oppression, there have been, you know, sort of um, anything that started from, you know, enslaved. and 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 sort of them bringing it forward to to now the modern era um whereby yes we are seeing representation but still we hear about cases and we hear about you know sort of instances happening that should be you know eradicated or at least you know there needs to be some sort of um prevention
1: yeah it's interesting actually you mentioned the point about the 17th century and and it's carried through you know siobhan makes the point that the black panthers 10 point plan is essentially the same same fight that she's fighting today and she would like it to be the case that her children and her her grandchildren don't have to do that but it shows that this is a an ongoing evolution from generation to generation where unfortunately it would appear that not much progress is being made um and certainly that's that would that would seem to be highlighted by that but siobhan herself Making amazing impacts in the inner cities in New York. Forty percent reduction in crime in August. One of the safest mm. months ever in New York City. Went to these communities. We showed them love. I think it's. I think it's really interesting how she's she's been able to really get into those communities and and address some of the issues that they're fa- that they're facing.
2: Mm. And I think for someone like her, I mean, you know, you you, you can within the first five minutes of listening to her speak right you can see that this is passionate this is not just a and i'm not wanting to talk down any of our kind of founders or you know sort of um technology leaders that come on this podcast they, they are passionate about their work but this is this is more you know something that she is feeling within and has had some sort of personal experiences right so when she talks she's talking from the heart and you can tell that this is you know somewhere th- this is this is it for her, and this is her sort of legacy, right? Um, I mean, we and you were talking before we started recording about, you know, sort of articles and stuff that she has been published in and the type of attention that she's got. And, you know, she's very passionate, I guess, and what is great to me is to see that she's getting that community engagement because, you, I mean, you know, let's be honest, throughout history, a lot of people have had a lot of rogue ideas and some of them have had following and some of them have not, right? Um, whether or not those ideas would be right or wrong. But the fact that she's getting amongst in amongst and inside these communities, she's helping to drive crime rates down. She's helping for that education and understanding, um, which I think is is vital. Um I think that's what helps the the agenda to move forward.
3: Mm.
2: And that and then that's what helps sort of, you know, the the mutual respect Um, To be there.
1: I think what's great as well is you talk about the fight it sounds
2: Mm.
1: confrontational but then you listen to what she's really doing you know creating pathways into trade, job training, the fact that she's an ex-financer using those financial skills to try and help people you know we don't think about our neighbours espousing the need to think about our neighbours, giving Mm. back Um, through corporate structures changing you know giving back in a corporate structure so that people change the way that they think about their work and their life and sprinkling a little kindness through action in the community it's all highly positive stuff and she even highlights the fact that you know black women are the fastest growing sector when it comes to or or demograph rather when it comes to business owners who are highly educated in the usa and that it's Mm. the need to try and fill those same voids in the corporate sector all of this stuff is overwhelmingly positive action,
3: mm.
2: and I think all of these things. I mean, what they what they show us is these uh, these these steps that are being taken. These steps are to you know sort of go forward into the future and these are to you know make the future a lot better so when she talks about people going into careers you know equal representation numbers she talks about her finance background how she's creating those pathways that for me is basically what she's making sure is that the future like she mentioned for kids and grandkids and other kids and grandkids and other black generations to follow in the US in particular it's for them to have an easier path right rather than the the fight so i mean you watch movies you watch documentaries you hear podcasts and the fight that she has at the moment even though it it may seem difficult is a lot easier than the fight that they were having in the 17th and the 18th century Mm. right and that's the hopefully the natural progression um you know and, and in the same way here in 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 the uk and people in the States might be listening to this and going, Oh, what do two, um, you know, two, two guys from London know about the struggles of black people here in the U S trust me, we, we have our own struggles. We've had our you know, own kind of issues. Um, I'm, I'm, an ethnic minority and, and it's, it's sort of been the same. And now the same way that, you know, black people were proud that, you know, they finally had some representation in the highest office in the country. When Barack Obama became president, mm. Asians felt the same when Rishi Sunak came prime minister, you know? And it was like, well, how can we then push forward from there? And how can we align ourselves more? And it's about a better understanding and cohesion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're nearly at our break. Before we do, uh, we're going to have a very quick update that we're going to play. you. It's literally a minute or two with Thomas Fosper. Do you remember our roving reporter from Slush just before Christmas? Mm Mm-hmm. Aisle 3 founder, CEO. Well, yeah. we like to check back in on our founders every now and then, our, our, our podcast alumni. It's doing rather mm-hmm. well. Have a listen to this. We're welcoming back to the show Thomas Fosper, CEO of Aisle 3. How are you? Oh, I'm, well. I'm well,
4: thanks. Yeah, really good.
1: What I've always enjoyed, Thomas, is you've always been very honest about um, founder, startup founder life. But you put a post up on LinkedIn last week where basically um, new website, and sales sales went better than expected
4: uh yeah we um we've spent the last three years pretty much focused on just the product tech and the team building the business so uh, just before i headed out to new york for nrf last month literally the day before we thought that would be a good idea to launch the new version of our website a3.co and um The first couple of weeks were pretty cool. Um, We went from about 1,400 subscribers on the site to 1,700. So, you know, 300 in a month felt like a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, our investment in our TikTok channel paid off and we went uh, somewhat viral and I got a... um, a frantic Slack message from one of my teams saying, hey, can you check whether we've had any sign-ups in the last hour or so? And, you know, at 8 o'clock on the Monday, I kind of lifted up my laptop and went to go and have a look. And it was already at 500. <laughs> I was like, what have you done? And I literally watched it that evening like a totalizer on a telethon, just clocking up and up and up and up until I I think we kind of tapped out at about 1,300 towards uh, by midnight.
1: Amazing. What do you put that down to? Uh,
4: It looks like an overnight success. It is uh, the skill and hard work of a really talented content creation team um, investing in building a brand and building a community and content on TikTok over the last four months and we knew we had a good site. We knew that we were really engaging with uh, the community, but it just took that one kind of spark to, to ignite. And it's it's been incredible.
1: And if someone is is on TikTok, what's the, what's the handle?
4: Oh, we're a3.co. Check us out, it's, uh, it's really cool. I've got two really talented young people who absolutely love sneakers and fashion. They really represent the brand really, really well. Um, and yeah it's, it's it's a good way to waste uh, waste a few hours of your time scrolling through that
1: well look fingers crossed it continues to go well fingers crossed and uh we'll catch up with you again soon or get you to tell us what what Vegas is like for uh, shopify is it shop no it's it's what's the what's the conference coming up in Vegas there is shop
4: talk coming up in about 6 shop weeks talk. Uh, I'll absolutely look forward to that and I certainly look forward to Uh, some more sleepless nights um, as we scale, but I guess for all the right reasons. Absolutely.
1: All right, keep, keep safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers, pal. Here at Tech Talks, we're very lucky to have a lot of content and sometimes we're not entirely sure what to do with it. For example, when we go to a conference, we will quite regularly meet 15 or 20 people and not know how to get them all on the show. So we've created something new, Tech Talks Extra for those snippets from conference floors or from one-off events that we don't quite know how to fit into your regular Tuesday show. Tech Talks Extra is free. It's on a private RSS, so you do need to sign up for it and subscribe, but as I say, it's free, and all you need to do is hand over your email address, and in return, we'll give you instructions of how to access all of that additional content. To get instructions and to sign up to the show so you can play it on apple and google podcast players all you need to do is go to www.nashsquared.com forward slash the hyphen hub forward slash tech hyphen talks hyphen extra hyphen sign up hyphen form alternatively have a look at the link in the show notes probably a bit of an easier way to do it don't miss out on all the bonus content that we've got from the likes of Web Summit, Unleash World, or from any internal events that we're running. Welcome back to the show. As we said, we've got another interview to bring you with um, Amit, VP of Product from Beachfront, talking all about advertising. Um, Akish, one of the last points that you made when relating to Shivana's interview was about um, uh, someone black being in the highest um, office in the USA. That was a lot made of the fact, actually, that the two quarterbacks last night were black. Um mm. And that actually was quite a transformational moment. It has happened before, but this was the first time where the whole quarterback role, the the the, the way that that black athletes played as quarterback was seen as Maverick, whereas now it's seen as the way to play quarterback. Um mm. which was quite interesting. So a link between our two interviews there. I can't really comment any more than that because I'm, I'm at the limit of my American. Uh, I mean, I was going to say
2: honest. our, both our NFL, uh, knowledge is probably now maxed to be yeah. honest. Um, yeah. So, Go yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, this, this is an interesting interview because we, we do talk about appointment viewing. Um, the fact that actually not every part of the USA is is, is equipped to deal with the streaming demand that you're kind of finding through uh, video on demand, etc. Amit talks about the fact that sometimes we let perfect be the enemy of good. And it's also that big question of how do you work out which media channels are worth spending your money on? So there's lots there to sink your teeth into. Akish, do you think adverts are a bit too personalised these days? Do you get a bit creeped out by adverts online that are very personalised? Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I get, I get, I'm not saying freaked out, but sometimes it's like, oh, well, didn't know I needed to see this, and now I do, so... I forgot, I forgot um, my
1: phone or Alexa was listening, and now I, now I've just been reminded.
2: Yeah, yeah, but the funny thing is, when you're having a conversation about something that's, you know, fairly, uh, obsessing or whatever, and then suddenly, you, you, you know, you, you get that sort of, <laughs> You know, you get that stuff that are all sent to you, but uh, like for example, but but also it helps raise awareness. So, for example, over the the weekend, I've been reading a lot about the the sort of you know the earthquake in Turkey and Syria mm-hmm. and these sorts of things, and now you know I'm getting all these sort of Red Cross pages and donations and all these sorts of things can sent my way, which is great because it allows me to help.
1: We'll pass over to the interview with Amit. Um, Akish, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for Shivana for being our initial guest earlier in the show and to Thomas, but do stay tuned for this, for this last little bit of today's show. So I'm joined by Amit, VP of Product at Beachfront. How are you today? Doing great.
3: Thank you for asking.
1: Um, let's start with who Beachfront are and set some context around the
3: conversation. Absolutely. So, uh, so Beachfront Media is a uh, supply-side ad server, uh, so we help uh, publishers or content creators, uh, distributors. Um, get ads, you know, into their uh, content streams, Um, we both help with the connectivity of that. So, you know, connecting, uh, you know, buyers to uh, publishers. And then we also help with maximizing the monetization of that, right? So uh, how do we make sure that our publisher partners are making as much as they can for their ad space uh, where and when applicable?
1: So forgive the kind of rudimentary questions, but when we're talking about getting ads into the right spaces, are we simply talking about... Television commercials. I mean, well, why? What, what are the screens? Yes. What, you know. What is what, what is the actual channel and, and how is this being currently uh, consumed by consumers?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, you know, we focus predominantly on connected television. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think for us, what you would think of as a traditional TV break in a lot of situations is, you know, we're trying to uh, help publishers deliver ads into those TV breaks, what we would call a pod, um, an ad pod, and then you have multiple slots within that pod. Um, so, you know, we're helping publishers deliver you know, uh, ads within there. Uh, and when I say publishers, you know, it, it's, it's often, you know, like content creators, it could be, uh, you know, people that are producing video content. Um, and then, you know, secondarily, there's also non, you know, TV formats. So you can have, you know, somebody who's watching something in a video on demand experience, um, who, you know, has loaded, you know, content within there and then they get to an ad break. So kind of helping, you know, maximize monetization and, and ad delivery within that.
1: So what are the, uh, challenges, uh, what's what's the kind of the, the, the issue to solve here and before I, before I kind of let you answer it would be interesting to know how important is it to know who's watching because one of the interesting things of course that's happened during the pandemic is I'm working from home a lot more yep. I'll put the television on in the middle of the day yep. uh, and all of the adverts seem to be aimed at pensioners still and their retirement plans it's like hang on a minute you've got a new audience at home and no one seems to have picked up on that
3: yep Yeah. You know, I think, uh, so, so to answer the first question, you know, the the importance of the user resolution is, is really key. Um, it's, it's as much for the user as it is for any of the brands that are advertising there. So if you think about you as a user who's watching television, right. Um, if you were to see the same ad 10 times within one episode, you're going to walk out of that episode or leave that episode with probably pretty ill serious feelings of ill will towards that brand. Like, I just, I don't want to think about that brand anymore. So not only have you created a really bad experience for that user on your content, you've also created a really bad brand perception, right? Um, so when we talk about user resolution or, or, or how we're doing that, um, it's really, really key. What's interesting is, um, you know, when we think about the TV industry as a whole, the way that a lot of this is getting delivered is... is kind of a mix of old meets new, right? Mm -hmm. So the initial assumption, you know, some time ago, four or five years ago, I remember having, you know, hearing these conversations in the market, everything's going to be streaming. Everything is going to be streaming content. There will be only streaming delivery. Um, And you have, you know, a lot of these, you know, a set-top box enabled, you know, MVPDs that were, you know, DISH, DirecTV, who are, you know, were salient then and people were thinking this is going to move out of that model. That hasn't happened right? And, and I don't think it's going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen anytime in the relatively near future. So this kind of creates a really interesting challenge, right? You have viable ways of delivering to really, really relevant audiences that aren't necessarily in these like connected or streaming platforms, right? So a lot of what we're trying to do at Beachfront, and we talk about convergence, right? Converging some of these legacy TV models with some of the newer ways that we have to transact or to deliver, um, Uh, TV ads, right? So, you know, part of it is um, building out infrastructure for them to move into and deliver ads in those spaces, uh, as much as it is trying to create connections for them to to find new people to buy ad space, right? So it's a little bit of, that's why I said, you know, it's about helping them with the actual ad delivery. It's also about helping them with monetization and and finding revenue sources.
1: Just as of interest, and this is perhaps a side topic which may become relevant to the, to the conversation as we go, but why do you think it is that we haven't moved away from that more traditional mode of viewing? If I think about television that I watch, you mentioned before we hit record that you're a big Spurs fan. Yes. Sky Sports in the UK, yep. uh, they have their tagline that it's only live once. Yeah. And we kind of think of event television as being the thing that kind of draws families together. Is there an element of that? And also, then I suppose the bit that might make this relevant: how does that then impact on, on the advertising side? Yeah,
3: absolutely. You know, I don't. There's all. There's. There is definitely a movement. You know, there's a lot of what is consumed now is appointment viewing. We call it appointment viewing, where it's I need to experience that in the moment. Um, And so, you know, the high-profile tentpole things, a lot of the sports, obviously, is appointment viewing. You don't want to get a a sports score hours after it's done. You want to watch it while it's happening. I think what I would point to for why you haven't seen that firm transition out of more legacy uh, television, you know, delivery is can be as simple and as fundamental as just uh, bandwidth availability, right? Not every part of the country is equipped to handle the, the, the load that streaming services need, Right. It seems really obvious, or I shouldn't say it seems obvious, but it seems like we would have overcome that problem, but we hadn't. It. I mean, it's not universally true. Fiber hasn't been pulled everywhere that can enable that kind of bandwidth. Uh, so that that can be one thing. It can also just be that you know people go with what they know, right? Um, you know, we haven't fully, we haven't moved to that full universe of cord cutting, right? There are people that have cut the cord, and I think a lot of those people who chose to do that did that pretty early on. Um, and eventually that's going to plateau. There are people who like having, you know, uh, these things tied together. This could also be as simple as having multiple services tied together. You have your internet, your phone, and your television, right? So, um, you know, th- there's a lot of reasons why people haven't fully moved off. Um, and-, and I'm not saying that they won't, or I'm not saying that that, that isn't eventually going to become, you know, where we're going. But there's-, there's obviously a lot being done on the other side of the conversation, the legacy models, to try and build values so that they're not antiquated. Right, they're not just going to wait for themselves to become extinct, Um, and so you know they're they're doing things to create connectivity where and when they can, so that it is more of a you know streaming you know experience for users. Uh, So it's kind of interesting. You have a lot of these things happening simultaneously.
1: And I suppose that appointment television then, if it increases in, in importance, becomes even more critical from a user experience point of view when it comes to advertising.
3: Absolutely. So when you think about you know the the live. You know, you're, you've now sat down, you're, you're there, you could be by yourself, you could be with your family, but when you start to think about the experiences that you're having, you're now having it with more, you're usually doing it with more people, right? Um, and so when you create these negative perceptions, either from the person who's hosting the content or for the brand, it kind of like amplifies that, right? You know, if you're watching something with your family, I'm sure this has happened to you or, you know, to, to the listeners where you're watching something, you're like, this is the fourth time I've seen this happen. But you're not just having that moment by yourself. There's like three other people sitting next to you like, this is too much, right? So you can really supercharge bad experiences with, you know, the appointment viewing.
1: Um, you talked a little bit, and again, this is before we hit record, about the fact that we're kind of moving away from manual processes towards an automated process, or that's the hope. Yes. What are the hurdles that are making that harder that still need to be overcome?
3: Yeah. So um, in the universe of buying TV ads, um, there's you know sort of what we call like direct buying. So that's when a channel will go and create a transaction directly with that brand. Um, and then there's also what we call programmatic, which is there's no communication. I'm going to tell you what you need to know about this program. And based on that information, you're going to bid on whether or not you want to deliver a user an ad right? One is transacted in real time, right? Half second, less. The other one is obviously a little bit, it's much slower, right? You're having a conversation with somebody and you're, transa- you're you know, you're, you're, uh, you're putting an insertion order in for a certain amount of, of media. The, the, the legacy models in order to, to work with buyers who are buying things, in what we call programmatic fashion need to adopt, you know, what, what they need to send downstream to the buyers for them to know whether they want that user. So a lot of what happens, what we're doing is creating connection and connectivity where we say, here's what you need to know about this potential impression or pod, right? Here's here's the information. Here's the information on the content. Here's the information on the user. And then the buyer is saying, great, based on that, here's what I'm willing to pay for that. That isn't necessarily, that connection point hasn't been created for the legacy systems. So we're trying to work that through. The other thing that is huge challenge. What what has enabled the growth of programmatic buying or advertising is it's largely addressable, meaning I know more about that user than, you know, average ad delivery experience because it's a digital footprint, right? So I might know their IP address or their, you know, their general geo information. You have to provide that information now for, for people to understand the value of that user. A lot of the legacy systems are not equipped to do that. Or, can't or don't want to, right? You know, there could be privacy regulation, could be contractually written. So, you know, getting them to a point where you can provide more information or better information downstream to the buyer is a huge hurdle. Um, The interesting thing is, is that the people that are on those legacy channels or or people that are consuming that are great users and a great experience. And that is like a huge thing for our industry We spend a ton of time thinking about how do we get to real people watching quality content, right? Because our industry is rife with fraud. Like there's a lot of people that are spoofing things. There's, you see fake requests, not real content, all that kind of stuff. These are these are real people watching content in a great experience, in a great environment. On the TV, the most impactful thing you can watch. Um, and so it isn't that they're not valuable. They are inherently valuable. It's about making sure that the buy side has the signals to assess that value. Sometimes we let the perfect be the enemy of good. So... You have great users on a great experience, and that might be good enough. And you can say, here's all you need to know about the content they're watching. Um, and because it's not at parity with the rest of the things that are happening in streaming and programmatic, people will be like, I, I'm not going to buy that. I don't want to buy that user. I don't know enough about them. Well, you know that they're on a quality, you know, they're in a quality experience watching real content. They're a real person. You might know about that content. Um, so that's an example of perfect being the enemy of good. We might not ever get to a point where it might take us much longer, where everything is universally connected, right? We, we know uh, who this person is, but um, in the meantime, it doesn't stop that from being a good channel to spend on. Mm. Uh, media channel, I mean, not, not TV channel. Uh, could be TV channel. But yeah, so you know, I think that's a, that's a hurdle that we've been working on and continue to work on is how do we create enough information for the buy side to say, hey, this is a good person. We want to deliver them an ad. Um, and so you know, we need to make sure that we're creating that opportunity and that's an opportunity for those legacy channels to monetize otherwise unrealized revenue.
1: Now, convergence and automation rely on data, which then calls into question privacy. Yep. How challenging is it right now to get across to people that actually, if they want a, a good experience and if they want high quality content, they have to accept that there might be some advertising because it's unless it's behind a paywall that they're paying for, that's how they're getting the content.
3: Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an unspoken or spoken uh, transaction that happens every time somebody consumes content, right? Um, especially if you think about, you know, web pages and stuff like that, they're, the, the publisher, the content creator's right to monetize, right? They have a right to monetize their inventory. They have a right to try and put ad spaces in there to recoup the expenses of hosting the web page. Somebody has to make that content, And so the question really becomes not whether or not they have the right to monetize that. The question becomes what level of uh, addressability can you create in those ad experiences, or or what are we comfortable with? Um, You know, I've always tried to say that you know the 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 thing about cookies that I think, and I understand everybody's sensitivity to this, is not to say that I'm. I push that aside, but it's an alphanumeric string that I can't resolve past that point. I don't know who you are. I don't know your address. I don't know anything else about you, and I can't. I could never work that backwards. Um, And so, as an anonymized identifier, it's it's pretty effective. And you have you know you know IFAs and stuff like that in in the in the connected TV world. Um, Those things are all designed again to help buyers understand the value of that user, and the more the buyer is willing to spend on that user to deliver an ad the more revenue the publisher makes, the more you can create rich content. I mean, there's these things are all very, very tied in together. Um, and, you know, we, we see it as a potential infringement on our privacy, and I understand that. I really do, because there is a line. And I think the key to being successful, both as a as somebody who is creating content and delivering ads, as well as a brand that's about to advertise, is to not cross that line, right? There, the second somebody thinks you've now stepped into a universe that you're, I'm not comfortable with you being in, they'll never buy your product, right? And, and rightfully so. If I felt like somebody was, you know, stepping into my, my privacy and knew too much about me and was delivering an ad that was too tailored, too personalized, like, I'm not buying this. this is, you've gone too far. Uh, the flip side of that is, is you know, if you get the right level of, okay, this is relevant to me. I, I can see why I would need this product. It's, you know, it's in line with my interests and likes. Um, you increase the purchase propensity, but you do it in a way that isn't obtrusive, mm. right? And so that's why I think things that like are, are inherently designed to obfuscate the user are really, they're good for that, right? They, they create enough visibility on what the interests are without way stepping into that boundary, right? I'm not going to put your name into an ad, right? That's crazy. Um, so it, it's about finding that balance. And, and we as an industry have been, you know, I, I came from a personalized video, you know, uh, buy side partner, you know, a you know, uh, 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 a tech company. And this was a conversation we had all the time. What's too far? Um, and what data are we using? And frankly, that's that that's kind of the key question of where we are as an industry uh, for advertising across the board.
1: Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Thanks for coming in and taking some time.
3: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for having me.